This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, one of your hosts. And today I'm talking to Josh Soretti, Associate Professor of History and Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Western Washington University, about his new book, Abuses of the Erotic, Militarizing Sexuality in the Post-Cold War United States, out last year with the University of Nebraska Press. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, Josh. How are you? Good. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thanks for joining me. This is wonderful. So lovely day in Bellingham. Uh, pouring rain. Um, <laughs> we call it we call it um, January, and so <laughs> where yeah, summer comes. <laughs> maybe in a few more weeks, it'll eventually appear. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm talking to you from Amsterdam, so I fully understand this. You know the feeling. Oh yeah. All right. So uh, let's just jump right in. This is. Uh, fascinating and but but challenging read um and i'm not going to call it a like the feel good book of the decade right no, so not, i'm interested <laughs> not 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 that so i'm interested really how you got here um and so perhaps you could tell us about yourself how the current work is part of your ongoing intellectual program and and what brought you to do this work yeah great so i would say that this book is really thinking through the problem of the war on terror. And so, you know, the United States has been involved in this ill-defined global war for 19 years now, longer than some of the soldiers who are fighting in it have been alive. And for me, this has been a kind of defining context for my life. And so I was a senior in high school when the United States invaded Afghanistan and I think a lot of uh, people who graduated the same year I did in high school are a lot of people who went and fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I went in a very different direction and really became very committed to anti-war activism, which then opened up a lot of understanding through my interactions with all the people who are m- most affected by war. Um, I really you know, began from, I think, a pretty generic kind of left peace perspective but I came to understand that beyond, thinking beyond just war to think about state violence and thinking about things like policing and prisons, thinking about forms of structural violence and the kind of disinvestment in public services that comes out of militarism, it all seemed to me to be such a mess. And it just seemed like people were not necessarily... Um, really thinking critically about the way that these problems weren't necessarily solvable by the state, 
given that the state produced them. And so mm-hmm. that was, uh, uh, you know, that is something that is challenging in a lot of disciplines where the state is still very much at the heart of things. And so, you know, state frames dominate a lot of history, despite the, the advances of transnational studies. Political science really has the, often this assumption that the state's use of violence is legitimate. Uh, but what I found was that women, gender, and sexuality studies was a field where, especially through the work of Black feminists like Joy James, Angela Davis, and, and many others, that I came to understand better how to approach the state critically. Um, and that really, it, it, it spoke to me. And from my first class in women, gender, and sexuality studies, it's kind of it became my home. And so um, that was my undergraduate and graduate education was all in that discipline um, and really was a place that I think in a lot of ways allowed me to think critically about war and militarism and about the state, but then also had me do it or had me thinking more about the ways in which a lot of critiques of the state and militarism really center white men like me as the kind of the, the, the unit of analysis. And so for me, I think bringing this conversation together in between these kind of critical feminist and queer perspectives with peace and conflict studies was where the kind of the spark of the book came. Mm-hmm. And then I think from there, I really was trying to understand, okay, should I just look at the war on terror itself? Should I look at what's happened since 2001? And pretty quickly, what I realized was that if we want to understand what's been happening in the past two decades, that it's actually really useful to look right before that and to understand what was happening in the 1990s to try to get at how we ended up in the mess we're in today. (laughs) Excellent. You know, and there are a couple things there that really strike me. I mean, first of all, is that it's an odd intersection, the study of like war, conflict, militarism, and then to intersect with gender sexuality is on the face of it, an interesting kind of an, an, an odd marriage, but it fully works as we'll get into in a little bit. But I'm also really moved um, particularly with the idea that like the 1990s were this kind of idyllic time do, do, do. Mm. Um, you know, and that uh, <laughs> right this very moment when we're talking about policing, we can see what the, the explosion of police on the streets, right? We yeah. can see what happens in the 90s, but I don't think that that's in the popular kind of conception of the 90s. I don't think that's one of the leading themes. Yeah, this really does. This book and and uh, maybe my entire existence throws a cold <laughs> bucket of water on '90s nostalgia. Oh man! Um, yeah. And to look at the way, and I think that it is uh, uh, one of the fundamental things that you know all all historians disturb nostalgia in different ways. But I think especially given people's sense of, of, of rapid change in this moment, that nostalgia for even you know, more recent eras has come mm-hmm. up in a number of ways. And I think that one of the things in terms of where I see or where I felt like there was a space for this book to fill 
was in that there was a lot of work that's written about the Cold War and a lot of work that's written about the war on terror. And some works that even connect these two phases to each other, these two eras, these two conflicts, but so little asked, how did we go from this moment in, say, 1989 or 1990, where people were talking about this peace dividend, about the end of the Cold War, a new era of global cooperation and peace, and a number of different ways in which people thought that the end of the Cold War might be the kind of end of major wars around the world. And then 10 years later, we're in a global endless war again. Mm-hmm. And I just, endless. yeah. And it, to me, it, you know, it, what, what I initially was thinking in some ways more in terms of analogy between the war on terror and cold war, as I was thinking about this project, in what ways is the war on terror a kind of new cold war? But what I came to understand, what was important, was to get at the way that the United States really failed at post-conflict transformation in the wake of the Cold War. Um, I, I got my master's degree in Costa Rica at the UN University for Peace, studying gender and peace and conflict studies. And there, people from all over the world are there. We're reading scholars from all over the world. And peace and conflict studies really focuses on this this moment at the end of a conflict. When the war is declared over, how do we prevent the next war? How do we move to a sustainable peace, transform that conflict? And it seemed to me like no one was asking those questions about the United States, right? It, it, It was easy to sort of propose a research project that said, Um, I want to look at post-conflict former Yugoslavia, post-conflict Rwanda, post-conflict Nicaragua, right? It it seemed normal and natural and made sense to a lot of academics in the U.S. to think about these states as having this troubled emergence from war. But what I realized was that I'm from a country that has never really (laughs) successfully emerged from war. Because every time this country declares peace, we pretty quickly end up fighting again soon. And so I I wanted to not take that for granted um, and not just take that as a consequence of the United States being a a militaristic settler, colonial, imperial state at its core, but to see specifically how people were brought from that promise of peace at the end of the Cold War to a, a commitment to perpetual warfare only 10 years later. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. This is, um, yeah, God. I mean, just having to think about how that worked, right? And the optimism, this amazing optimism as we watch the Berlin Wall come down and we see, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union. It's like, oh, glorious peace. But as as you demonstrate, right, then we spent the next 10 years militarizing. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it is, it's really, uh, all right. It is. So, I, go ahead. It definitely, you know, again, it, it, it makes you, you know, I think it provides a, a critical perspective. I will say, hopefully, I do, ha- you know, I hold out some hope and possibility that by understanding this, we can undo some of it. Yeah. I'm curious about how much we're able to, like, have this disconnect about the 90s as a precursor to the endless war because of our ability to uh, tell ourselves that. 9-11 wasn't our fault, mm. right? We were, were, we were completely attacked. The U.S. is nowhere near it at fault. 
war was thrust upon us. Right. Do you find, is that an important thread of this discourse? Yeah, I do think that as I, I begin the book with looking at a range of reactions to the September 11th attacks. And what I was really struck by in looking at so many of these statements was this common thread of relating the attacks to sexuality. And this took a few different kind of layers. Most extreme, we have these kind of really right-wing mm-hmm. evangelical Christians saying that, well, the, the problem here is that feminism and gay and lesbian rights and kind of all of all of sexual liberation, that's what caused this, right? So we can see right away in that that some people were already primed to basically mm-hmm. relate any kind of sort of possibility of of attack or violation or defeat of the United States to the fault of sexual liberalism or sexual liberation. And then we saw a lot of people analogizing the September 11th attacks to a sexual assault. And that was really common and was one of the ways that I think that 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 framing of thinking about the United States as a kind of aggrieved victim was really important and really took this ground away. And as I discuss in the first chapter, really relied on this 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 total paradox to me at least that in the 1990s it became abundantly clear through things like Tailhook or Okinawa or Aberdeen the way that sexual violence in the military was this epidemic but at the same time more and more the justifications for sending US troops into foreign countries was on the idea that they were going to prevent sexual assault or punish people who had been committing it. Mm-hmm. And that really, to me, that was a framing that was relatively new in the 1990s. If you look at, say, the justification for the U.S. intervention in Grenada or other Cold War interventions, the, the focus is very much on communism, right, on the, this defined kind of ideological foe. If you look at 90s interventions like the Gulf War, you look at Haiti, and you look at Somalia or the U.S. interventions in, in Kosovo and in the former Yugoslavia, they're talked about as these humanitarian interventions, as these interventions that are meant to sort of protect civilians and especially innocent, helpless women. Right. And that and that that framing, again, has this other level of absurd hypocrisy because the United States government wants to cast women as these helpless victims of war violence when the United States military is 15 percent women and that women are playing key roles in the the whole apparatus, in the, the sort of dealing of death that's going on. And so. There was so much to me that that on one level didn't make any sense, but I could see at a cultural and national level that most people didn't see a lot of friction between this. So one of the things I think the book does throughout is to get us to reframe a little bit and kind of problematize some of the things that we've taken for granted because of how powerful these framings are. Mm-hmm. 
And this is, I mean, the idea that um, your the country, the hearth, the home, our women are being violated when they, they must be protected by, uh, you know, an inflating army isn't new, but um, the language is new here. And the, the direct correlation we're seeing, like, we're going to, what was it, uh, sexually, you know, uh, gender apartheid was that the phrase yes gender apartheid right. in afghanistan yeah right <laughs> like, and, then, and you know the absolutely that kind of you know where protecting women is a very old justification one of the things that become that is new about this is that the united states is intervening in foreign countries mm-hmm. going beyond the idea of protecting american women Right. And to say that now they've declared themselves the protectors of the women of Haiti or, or the sure. women of Kuwait. Um, and so that then we get this kind of justification for global intervention under the guise of protection when we know that the, the supposed protectors are very much part of the problem of sexual violence. Ah, absolutely. Yeah. The idea that white men will go in and save brown women from brown men when we know that white these white men are not protected. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that we see that that and you know the evidence is there both in terms of these specific incidents where, you know, we have US soldiers, uh, you know, and the I talk a bit about the case of Frank Rongi, who was a veteran of the intervention in Iraq and in Haiti, and then was sent to serve in Kosovo in the war on Serbia. And he abducted and sexually assaulted and murdered this young girl and his fellow soldiers helped him cover it up. And that this, the, the United States said that they were coming to Kosovo to protect women from sexual violence, yet they brought people who obviously were, were part of a culture where there was no accountability, there was a lot of impunity, and that this wasn't an effective way to actually address sexual violence in that context. And so it's 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 a red herring when they say we're, we're, we're going in for that reason, which I think is most clear if we look at, at the situation in Afghanistan, where the United States has really supported all of these really misogynistic warlords and, and really just people who, who, if you were ever going to have, you know, an intervention to end gender apartheid or to, to, to have a feminist intervention, you can never work with people like Dostum or the, a number of the people who have been elevated to high positions of power in Afghanistan due to the U.S. intervention. Mm-hmm. So this seems like a very good point, uh, in, point here to pivot so your discussion in chapter two, confronting an enemy abroad, transforming a nation at home, heterosexuality and domestic militarism. Yeah. So this chapter, and I'll, I, I think one, just in thinking about the overall organization of the book, in the first chapter, I, I deal with the militarization of sexual violence. And in this chapter, I'm thinking about the militarization of normative heterosexuality. And that for some people even people who are in kind of in this discourse and thinking critically about it. A lot of people think, well, there's kind of a natural um, confluence of heterosexuality and militarism. They work well together in some ways and that militarism depends on 
these ideas of active protectors and these kind of passive protected. And that's very much the script of heterosexuality, right? Men as the active agents, women as passive and waiting there, and everybody clearly divided into these two non-overlapping categories. Um, But for me, what was influential in thinking about this was the way in which the space within the borders claimed by the United States is often naturalized as not a result of U.S. imperialism or not tied to U.S. militarism. We, we take for granted very often in a lot of our framing the United States as a kind of bounded whole entity. Um, for me, when I was at University of Buffalo, I took a lot of courses and did a lot of work in Haudenosaunee studies and in indigenous studies. Um, Teresa McCarthy, an Onondaga scholar professor there, really taught me a lot about just seeing the U.S. and Canada in this critical context and to not take them for granted. So to understand the so-called domestic space of the United States as uh, an accomplishment, an achievement that had to be made rather than just something naturally that was created through the U.S. government marking these borders. And so then I start thinking about the term domestic, and that's Mm -hmm. kind of the key element here. And thinking about how domestic is used for the space within the borders claimed by the United States and the space occupied by a heteronormative family. And to see the ways in which violence and state violence specifically in thinking about what we might think of more as policing or various forms of domestic militarism is tying these two things together. Uh, so in this chapter, I look first in that, that language of confronting an enemy abroad, transforming a nation at home, comes from George H.W. Bush's speech at the end of the first Gulf War. When, and that's what he said happened, right? And this was, to me, was such an incredible statement. To, to think about and to take seriously. Um, and I, I think one thing I, I try to do throughout a little bit is sort of take more kind of militaristic and right-wing forces to take them at their word and to ask, okay, what, what was the transformation then after the Gulf War? And so I, I link the Gulf War to a series of events that, that I see is very closely linked to here. And again, get us a sense of the way in which this war comes home. Um, and so in this case, I'm looking at the L.A. uprising, um, which happens in the spring of 1992 and is in many ways ended by the deploying of U.S. troops to Los Angeles many of whom had served just a year earlier out there in Kuwait and in Iraq. Um, Then I look at the Waco siege, which happens the next year um, down in Texas, as well as the Oklahoma City bombing, which happens one year after that um, and is committed by a Gulf War veteran. And what I'm trying to do in all of this is to think a little bit about how wars abroad always come home and the way that they come home in ways that kind of disguise their origins. Because I don't think that, at least in what I've seen, I don't think that a lot of people have necessarily made that link between these events, right? To say we can go from 
the Gulf War to the LA uprising to the Waco siege to the Oklahoma City bombing is an itinerary that not many people are traveling, I think, in terms of their analysis. Um, But really what ties these all together, again, are ideas about how the legitimacy of state violence is tied to a particular vision and version of the family. Um, And thinking about these ideas about protection and protected, that they don't just kind of circulate on this global scale, right? But they come home in different ways in terms of white militants seeing themselves as needing to defend their communities and defend their countries, or in terms of the United States government really casting the Branch Davidians in Waco as having totally unruly, improper sexualities and sexual practices, and that justifying rolling out tanks and burning their compound to the ground. Um, Or to see the way in the wake of the LA uprising, how many people blamed the uprising not on police violence, not on the structural disinvestment in communities of color and urban communities, but instead on bad families, on absent fathers, right? And that was so to me, there was in that chapter, it pulls together some seemingly unlikely threads. Um, but really what ties it all together is how transnational militarism is not something we need to look at just as happening out there, but it's also happening within the borders claimed by the United States. So is this a good place in our conversation to talk about race? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think so too. What would you you like to talk about there? Like, what do you, how does like the idea of race and family and heterosexuality work? Yeah. So I think, you know, throughout this book, I'm really thinking about sexuality is always constituted by gender and race. And that though that kind of triangle of gender, race, and sexuality is an important frame here, and it's important to keep all those elements at once. Um, the The title of the book and the analysis of the book, in many ways, is coming out of Black feminist critiques of political economy, of thinking about identity and the connections between historical change and how we see our more personal and intimate lives. And so, you know, for me. The, the, throughout the whole book, at every turn, we're thinking about the ways in which sexuality is always raced and is always tied to particular narratives about the reproduction of the family or the failure to properly reproduce the family. Um, and then we can also see very clearly throughout, and I don't think this is a surprise to many people in the moment, but the, the precarity, the vulnerability the way in which people of color are exposed to early death on this kind of mass scale. And we can see it in all these different ways, right? That the United States and most of the people who survive or die from this militarized violence are people of color. And that the U.S. military is now about 40% people of color. Um, And that these are issues that really can't be seen in a single access way. They can't be isolated from each other. Um, I think about the, in chapter one, 
I talk about um, the 1995 kind of crisis around the U.S. military presence in the island of Okinawa um, in, in Japan and about the way in which these three U.S. servicemen abduct and sexually assault a young woman. And a lot of the conversation that follows that, we can't, we can't understand unless we really foreground and highlight that these were three black servicemen. And that a lot of white servicemen had gotten away with similar things in preceding decades and even afterwards, right? And so if we ever kind of approach these issues without an awareness of thinking about how ideas of anti-Blackness, and then, of course, in this case, thinking about U.S. military occupation in East Asia, stereotypes about exotic, servile, submissive Asian women that that's all in the mix there mm-hmm. and and that we can't understand these complicated neither the potential for alliance or the potential for conflict unless we're critically attuned to the way that this is not just about sexuality or gender which is unfortunately a a, a position that some feminist work might take on this or especially feminist work that was coming out in the 90s might take but we really need to highlight the the continued salience of race whenever we're looking at sexuality. Absolutely. And particularly, you know, right now is such a good time to think about this as we're listening to the news and we are in this totem of the dangerous, untamed black man right. who like is sexually dangerous and disrupts society. And, you know, and at the same time, the invisibility of the black father, like these this is so tightly connected and really I'm astounded by how little change I've seen. Mm. Yes. I mean, in that, you know, the, the, I think that hopefully, you know, these framings are are being questioned, but they are still very much in place. Mm -hmm. And in that idea of, you know, fundamentally, militarism comes back in a lot of ways to these fantasies of the white male protector of this idea that you know by by having a gun i can somehow create legitimacy for this family for this home for you know this this settler occupation of native land for white supremacy for all these things and so it does you know, I think we can see it operating at these macro levels in terms of global conflict, but then we can see it very much in terms of, of people who are, you know, stocking up weapons in, in fear of a home invasion that's probably never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, all right. So let's move forward to talk about uh, the construction of gay and lesbian identities that you discuss in your third chapter. Yeah. Um, So the third chapter looks, again, thinking about the 90s and thinking about the way that sexuality gets militarized. In this case, I'm thinking about gay and lesbian identity specifically and in relation to what is often talked about as the don't ask, don't tell debates or controversy. Um, A lot of scholarship, a lot in a lot of good stuff that looks into and kind of focuses on don't ask, don't tell, focuses on the idea of an axis of conflict between homophobic military and politicians who don't want to let gay and lesbian people serve openly, 
and a kind of gay and lesbian movement that's demanding equal rights or civil rights or full inclusion. When we kind of zoom in a little bit, right, and we think about specifically this this imagined block of gay and lesbian civil rights movement or gay and lesbian advocates, what we actually see is an enormous amount of conflict. And what I term this conflict is a conflict between militarized homosexuality and militant queerness. Militant is a really tricky word um, that that appeared, you know, as it popped up and as I was thinking about militarism, it became clear to me that when people were talking about militants in the U.S. context, they were often really talking about people who were against militarization. And especially in the late 80s and early 90s, the term militant around gay and queer communities was very much tied to this kind of anti-assimilationist, anti-government, and in many ways, anti-war position. Um, And I think the most clear crystallization of that is looking at a group like ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and how they use the slogan, money for AIDS, not for war throughout the late 80s and early 90s. And they really saw the survival, especially for gay and bi men, but for the whole broader kind of LGBTQ plus community, they saw survival as predicated on shifting resources away from war and militarism towards healthcare and towards more life-affirming and life-sustaining kind of activities. Um, This opens up a big split amongst gay and lesbian movements that's often missed or ignored, um, or sometimes it's talked about as a a transition that easily happened from an anti-assimilationist past to a more assimilationist movement in the 90s. But I really try to dig in into the ways in this moment that as this broad national debate is happening in the sort of network news media and cable news media, that underneath that, there's this debate happening about the relationship between queerness and nationalism. Um, and that this is really in many ways, in some places, tearing apart movements and getting allies to kind of get at each other's throats in different ways. Um, and then is also having an enormous effect on that national level debate, right? So the there's this kind of feedback that's happening between a divided LGBTQ plus constituency, and it gets really missed in accounts that just see this as the military versus a civil rights movement. Um, and so in this chapter, I look at some of the ways in which this evolution happens and the way in which, especially kind of as people move into the mainstream and out of the kind of marginality that so many LGBTQ people were in, those people that are able to move into the mainstream are, are of course, those who are most privileged and are most willing to collaborate with U.S. militarism. Um, I think a lot of people and, uh, you know, really important work that's informed a lot of people's work in recent years is Jasbir Puar's mm-hmm. Terrorist Assemblages, where she talks about homonationalism mm-hmm. um, and gives us a really 
great analysis and important theoretical concept. In part, what I'm trying to do here is to give some texture to how that, I, how homo nationalism became ascendant and to really track at the granular level how we go from money for AIDS, not for war, to having something like the Millennium March on Washington in 2000, where inclusion in the military was one of the key centerpiece issues along with marriage equality. Um, that's a big shift. That's another change that happens, you know, when thinking about the end of the Cold War going to the beginning of the War on Terror. How do we go from the radical AIDS direct action movement to a lot of white guys in suits sitting in congressional hearings talking about how patriotic and normal they are? Mm, right. Yeah. How do we get to homo normality? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and that that's that's quite a story in itself and then it that's this is another place where i see how at the, when we're talking about 2001 how we've normalized right mm -hmm. how the how the discourse is so normalized and it becomes very easy to forget that there was a point where the like gay men couldn't be in the military because they weren't manly enough right right and that the you know one one response to that is, uh, uh, unfortunately, to say, I'm going to prove to you what a man I am. And so we see, and this is, you know, one of the things, if we look at who gets onto the, into the New York Times or onto CNN, um, what we see again and again are these very square-jawed kind of, you know, white Midwestern farm boys that that really kind of fit the image of the strapping American soldier, and they they look like GI Joe. Mm -hmm. When we look at the 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 sort of the numbers, the realities, we know that "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" was a policy that mostly hunted out black women, and that black women are very much overrepresented in the U.S. military. Amongst women in the military, they're, they're about a third. And that they were the group that was most singled out for these kind of investigations. And so, and in general, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a policy that, that discriminated against women in particular ways because so much of the idea of soldiering is this kind of masculine ideal that to be a good soldier is to be not like a woman and consequently open yourself up to accusations of lesbianism. Mm -hmm. And this really, this in many ways is lost in that movement that's seeking assimilation by putting forward what seems like the most telegenic or photogenic or most kind of normative looking people instead of, of focusing on some of the complications of it and some of the ways in which particular narratives need to be produced in order to be acceptable. Um, so like Jose Zuniga, who uh, wrote Soldier of the Year and is, you know, was an important advocate for repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, he was in a relationship with a man and a woman at the same time. He was in a polyamorous relationship. He identified as bisexual, but he was in the closet about it. He had to pretend that he was just a plain old gay man <laughs> in order to provide a, a clear and compelling narrative for people 
Um, even though, according to the don't ask, don't tell policy, being bisexual was grounds for separation. So there, it, it's a policy, we talk about it as anti-gay, but it actually specifically added bisexual as another category of exclusion. I want so desperately now to like get into the weeds with you and talk about consumerism, the white picket mm. fence, like that, we, you know, the idea of the reproduction of a home of a heteronormative relationship, but we'll never finish. <laughs> yes, there is. Yeah. And that, I mean, we're, still, <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, 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 you know, trying to figure out how to move forward now in that, given that so many issues of injustice tied to sexuality and sexual orientation are still ongoing, but there's so much demobilization in the past few years, um, you know, and especially given the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and given the kind of broader availability of same-sex marriage, a lot of people have left the fight. A lot of people have just as Lisa Dugan predicted many years ago in, in talking about homonormativity that it would really demobilize those people who are able to buy into a portion of that white picket fence American dream. Yeah, the war's over for them. The battle, the, it's been won. Yes. Um, yeah. But really, we got to, okay, we got to move on here. All right. Yeah. You know, because uh, how long people are going to listen to the, you and I chat about this? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> right. So then uh, in chapter four, your your chapter titles are great, right? There are these quotes, okay. at, yeah, but a close and mutually beneficial relationship. Um, and you talk about the theme of reproduction here. Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah. So in this chapter here, um, the again, I'm thinking about different approaches to thinking about militarism and thinking about the United States in transnational context. And so I turned to the Pacific and specifically to the Marshall Islands, um, which is a place that was at one time a Japanese colony. And then the United States took over at the end of World War II and turned it into the trust territory of the Pacific. And supposedly the United States was to take these places over as a trustee to ensure that the people, the tens of thousands of Micronesian people who lived in this area um, could be kind of stewarded out of empire into, into independence. And instead what happened is the United States almost immediately began testing nuclear weapons there. Um, the Marshall Islands are in an area, a latitude near the equator where there is very little weather and the weather is predictable. So it's a, uh, in some ways a, a good place uh, in terms of meteorology for the nuclear test. And then also because it was a militarily occupied trust territory, the United States could restrict any information. So it was, it was totally controlled by the military. They could control who came in and out, and they could control information. Um, the United States conducted a, a really horrible series of nuclear tests throughout the islands over the course of the 1940s into the 50s and early 60s. And this is really one of, at least in my mind, one of the greatest shames of the Cold War. Um, the, the, the treatment, the disregard for Marshallese people, and specifically the disregard for the long-term effects of nuclear fallout and radiation that have become apparent in 
as a form of reproductive violence. And so Marshallese people um, began to speak out more and more against the effects of this. They were protesting the test program and their displacement all the way back in the 50s and 60s. But they started on a global stage, we started to see Marshallese women speak out against the reproductive problems that were created by fallout, by the different kind of lingering effects of radiation. Um, This is an ongoing issue. um, And this is one that now really intersects with the climate crisis, because even if Marshallese people are going to be able to sort of overcome the demographic impacts of displacement and of that kind of that the, the fallout and radiation impacts, that now their very homeland, their very land is being consumed by the ocean and by rising seas. Um, we're all concerned about the climate crisis. We're all part of the climate crisis, but The military is perhaps, the U.S. military is perhaps the biggest actor in it and is the biggest consumer of fossil fuels as an institution in the world and consumes more fossil fuels than 150 countries. Um, And this is tied to a kind of ongoing legal document called the Compact of Free Association that's negotiated at the end of the Cold War. Um, and is kind of brought into force in the late 80s into the 90s and renewed in 2004. Um, and what this compact of free association does is it claims that there is a close and mutually beneficial relationship between the United States and today's Republic of Marshall Islands. But actually what it's really trying to do is seal off that accountability for the United States for the generational impacts of the test program. And it also ensures that the United States still has access to Kwajalein Atoll to test missiles. And so the United States hasn't tested a nuclear weapon in the Marshalls since the 60s, but they, to this day, launch missiles from California into this atoll in the Marshall Islands as target practice. And those missiles would, if used in a, in a live situation, would have a nuclear warhead on them. So this is, again, thinking about looking at U.S. militarism and its impacts on sexuality and how ideas about sexuality attempt to sort of smooth over or camouflage militarism and then looking at this kind of this dusty corner of U.S. empire that I don't think gets nearly the attention it deserves. Wow. Um, I learned that from you, by the way, mm-hmm. about the, the, the uh, military, like that the military is still active in the Marshall Islands. Yeah. Um, wow. I know. I'm angry. I'm angry about this. It is, um, it is very disturbing and is, you know, I think, uh, Something that really, you know, I, I provide that possibly uh, uh, inaccurate Kissinger quote, but supposedly, you know, Henry Kissinger said when they're talking about nuclear testing there, who gives a damn? There, there's only 60,000 of them. And, you know, that attitude in many ways, unfortunately, more than 50 years later persists. Sure. Sure. And they'll be gone soon, right? Um, yeah. 
Ooh, all right. So let us conclude. Yeah. Josh, let's your conclusion is 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 kind of a conclusion. It's also a little bit of a new story. Uh, the long cold war. Tell us what happens. Yeah. So I, in the conclusion, I talk about the kind of redux that happens here where we see all of these themes, the militarization of sexual violence domestic militarism, the militarization of homosexuality, the militarization of reproduction, all of that that we can see happening in the late 80s throughout the 90s happens again in new ways, in a new kind of scale, a new context during the war on terror. And so we see those same justifications of protecting and saving women and the same way in which U.S. soldiers commit mass sexual violence at Abu Ghraib, Mahomedeah, all of these other locations that demonstrate that they can't be trusted to actually address or prevent this kind of violence. But still, people imagine them as providing this kind of humanitarian rescue. Um, We obviously see all kinds of new domestic surveillance and securitization that is happening um, and as a number of people have pointed out, that's really tied to what David Halperin calls the war on sex and about the increased surveillance and securitization around sex and sexuality. Um, we see with the eventual repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2011, this kind of welcoming of certain patriotic gay and lesbian people into the national body and into Um, the kind of the frame of humanitarian imperialism as, for example, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton talked about using the power of the U.S. military to influence LGBTQ rights in Africa. Um, And then in thinking about reproduction, in addition to seeing this ongoing program of missile testing in the Marshall Islands, we can see that The U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere are having a number of reproductive impacts, both on U.S. soldiers, many of whom have traumatic brain injuries that affect their sexuality, some of whom have pelvic injuries that are affecting their sexuality or other embodied injuries. And then we're also seeing huge reproductive impacts in the places that are invaded or in in terms of thinking about depleted uranium, in terms of thinking about just the way in which war increases maternal mortality, infant mortality, and every kind of demographic limiter. So I think that the the you can see the first half of the conclusion sticks with my dark and critical tone. (laughs) But the second half, I do think a little bit about how we can move towards a demilitarized future. Um, And so the book is really framed by Audre Lorde's essay, The Uses of the Erotic. Um, And she talked about the erotic as this well of replenishing and provocative force. And in my book, I mostly focus on another part of her essay where she talks about the distortion and, and the kind of use of sexuality for oppression, what I'm calling the abuses of the erotic. But she comes back to the idea that this can be a really important source of power. And this can be something that really gets us to think about human connection and thinking about fostering life as this answer to militarism. Um, And so I talk about 
a number of movements that I think their success in many ways is predicated on understanding the links between gender, sexuality, and race and militarism. Um, and so I talk a little about the organization Code Pink, which is one of the few groups that kind of formed in the, the um, immediate beginning of the war on terror that persist. And I think the reason they've outlasted other groups, um, other kind of anti-war coalitions is because of that really, that dedication to a gendered analysis. Um, and I talk about a number of other really hopeful, positive movements and things going on from the movement for Black Lives that's really thinking about police militarization and that domestic militarization, um, the undocu-queer movement that's thinking again about the connections between sexuality and the border and immigration system. Um, and I think that there are so many kind of hopeful possibilities in terms of see by having an analysis that's intersectional, that doesn't just put one factor at the center, that we really have an incredible set of tools for correcting a lot of the mistakes of the past and for building a demilitarized future. So is that what you're, uh, where you're headed? What are you working on now? Well, I I have sort of two two tracks that 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 I've been pulled on. I think as often happens, um, and so in 2014, um, as I was kind of moving towards finishing up the book in some ways, um, I moved here to Bellingham, Washington, um, which is about halfway between Seattle and Vancouver, um, on the Salish Sea in the territory of the Lummi, Nooksack, and other Coast Salish people. And I've been thinking about local history and what's around me in a number of ways. So I've been working on a number of really hyper-local history projects about the city of Bellingham um, and thinking about some of the ways that, again, how we got to this sense of normal. And so um, Bellingham is a very white city uh, and in 1950, 70 years ago, it was, according to the census, a 99% white city. Um, 100 years before that, in 1850, it was a 0% white mm -hmm. city. It didn't exist, right? And this area wasn't settled by white settlers until the 1850s. So thinking about that moment, how we go here from 1850 to 1950, um, has been something I'm thinking about in a number of ways and engaged in a few different projects here around, but I don't quite know the form that will take. Right now, I do a walking tour of downtown Bellingham, um, and so it's a 1.1 mile loop where we visit some historic sites, um, and I talk about decolonizing the history of this place and getting a new perspective on that. Uh, the other thing I'm working on that's a little more kind of in the frame of this book is thinking of uh, an, as another project about sexuality in the 90s that looks, instead of thinking about militarism, is thinking more about the idea of truth and knowledge about sexuality. Um, and so it's a project that looks at HIV denialism, which are, are people who believe that HIV doesn't cause AIDS. Uh, <laughs> looking at masturbation, um, which was a topic that by discussing it, um, Jocelyn Elders, who was the first black woman uh, surgeon general, lost her job 
And there's a big debate over whether you can even use the word masturbation in public in the 1990s. Um, and then thinking about sexual harassment and sexual violence in the workplace, specifically around Clarence Thomas and Bill Clinton. Um, and then thinking about the right to life movement and developing ideas about what we know about the fetus and about fetal life. Um, so all of these being kind of debates over the truth about sex and sexuality in the 1990s United States. Um, they're all threads from this book that I didn't get to fully take up okay. um, and seem to all be tied together again with this kind of this consistent attempt that goes back to 19th century sexologists to try to find the truth, the answer, mm -hmm. the absolute essence of sexuality, and about how those projects always fail, but tell us a lot about the anxieties and power relations of the moment in which they're asserted. Oh, that sounds... I'm, I'm, I can't wait to read that book. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, good. Well, yeah. Get on well, that. In like 10 years, we can get <laughs> Sure. So, you know, just sit down. Yeah. You know, those scholars who write a book every two years, it's just mm. like, what are you doing? Yeah. Stop it. You're making the rest of us look bad. I know. I know. And it, you know, I think you've got to, it, it's good to let, let these things cogitate a little bit, let them sit, mm. let them brew, let them flip around yeah. a little bit. And so I, I do, you know, I don't want to sit on any project forever, but it's nice to give it its time. And I think that that can help, uh, help you uh, kind of avoid some of the mistakes you might make if you mm -hmm. just proceed straight ahead. Sure. Well, and I mean, if you're doing things like it's good for you intellectually as in it and in every way to do something like a walking tour. That's a great idea. That's good yeah. for you. That's good for the people around you. It's been, and it's been definitely something I, you know, I, I, I will say, I think I've taken a lot more people in Bellingham on the walking tour than I think it, here in town have read the book. Um, <laughs> yeah. that, but, you know, I think that it's, it is a really for me, regardless of, of, of what I'm doing, I'm, I want to, you know, put history to work in the world. Um, and sometimes that means, writing a book. And sometimes that means, you know, doing action, organizing and activism that's historically informed. And other times it's about trying to get people to engage history in a way that kind of fits their context. So people here love to go for a walk, love to be outside. Um, and that was a great thing to take advantage of. And I'm sure I've managed to teach some people some things about town that they never would have sought out to read on their own. But because we did it in a walk, they got to learn. Right on. Excellent. Well, maybe they'll listen to your podcast. Yeah, I'd love that. Excellent. All right. Well, I have taken up a great deal of your time. So I think uh, if you're ready to go, if there's anything else, we're good. I think we're good. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. It was great to talk to you. All right. Take care. And I'll be calling about uh, the masturbation work. That sounds good. I look forward to it. All right. Bye. Bye.